Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We're speaking about what God is doing in global disasters. Many are becoming unsettled by the, and by the way, at the, in the end, you're going to see how that, how that ties in with our month of, uh, of prayer and fasting as well. Many are becoming unsettled by the tsunami of natural and man-made disasters that the world is facing today. There's the COVID pandemic, the war in Ukraine, weather disasters of drought and famines and floods and fires and earthquakes, sharply rising inflation from shortages in housing, fuel and food, and uh, supply chain issues, and we could go on and on. Likening them to birth pangs or birth pains, Jesus said that in the last days, natural and man-made disasters would increase in frequency, intensity, and scope. In Matthew 24, 7, it says, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. The United States uh, of America National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration website lists every disaster costing over a billion dollars going back to 1980. So I, I just took a few uh, pieces out of there and summarized it a little bit. But in the 80s, there were, uh, were uh, 2.7. Well, three large-scale large scale natural disasters per, per year. 1990s, it was five large-scale natural disasters per year. By, uh, by the 2010s, it was 12 large-scale natural disasters per year. And in, ninth, and in 2020, it hit 22. Jesus said that they would increase in intensity and frequency and scope. And in Matthew... Uh, uh, 24, 67, Jesus all said that wars would also increase. He said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The total wars from 1900 to, 2000, uh, to 2020 was 263 international wars and nearly 100 million killed. And, of course, today we have the Russian and Ukraine uh, kingdom against kingdom. That's what he means there. That's the international. And then there's the intranational. That's within nations. The conflicts within nations. And in uh, 2018, there was one international war and 60 intranational conflicts in places like Ethiopia and Colombia and Afghanistan, Myanmar, Iraq, Yemen, Sudan, Nigeria, and so on and so forth. Some say, some would say that the world is spinning out of control, and it would seem that way, doesn't it? But is it? There was a pastor, uh, my wife and I, um, my wife and I were t uh, attending the church that we attend when we're out west, and it's just half a block from us, a wonderful pastor, couple, uh, pastoral couple there, and um, that weekend, he had a guest preacher. It was a Canadian. And we knew this uh, Canadian pastor. And, we, and at one point in the message, this is what he said. He said, and I quote, because I memorized, we memorized it. Um, God isn't in control, for if he was, he would be the worst manager the world has ever seen. Does that make you gasp? 
We didn't know if we should get up and walk out or if we should sit there or what we should do. We were shocked. But do you know what that, you know what that church did? It applauded loudly. And that stunned me. It shocked me. We just sang, for you are in control. And he was saying that God is not in control. He is not managing the affairs of this world. He's not in control. Yet many verses say that God is sovereignly ruling over the nations today. Second Chronicles 20, verse 6. And I said many verses, and I mean many verses. I've cross-referenced many of them in my Bible. And Second Chronicles 20, verse 6 says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. And then, for your benefit, I just threw up a few cross-references. You can take a quick shot of it if you like. Many stories in the scriptures illustrate this truth, and I'll just give you one. There was a story of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 4. You remember, he dreamed that a tree grew... And uh, it, it grew to be strong and so great that its height reached heaven and was visible to the ends of the earth. Do you remember that story? And, and if you don't, go back and re, uh, read it. It, it, it. In it, he reports in his dream, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, reports that it was so great, birds lived in its branches, beasts found shade under it, and it provided food for all people. And in his dream, he saw a heavenly being come down and command that the tree be cut down. But the stump and roots were to be left alone. In verse 15 of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar said the stump, he knew that the stump in his dream was referring to a man, but he couldn't figure out who it was. So Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel to interpret the dream, and Daniel said that the tree referred to Nebuchadnezzar, whose greatness and dominion on the earth had reached the heavens. Daniel continued that the kingdom would be stripped from Nebuchadnezzar and that he would wander with, like a beast in the fields, with the beasts of the field, until, he said in verse 25, you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Amen? Verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32 all say that in Daniel chapter 4. God is in control and he sets up rulers and he takes down others. He is superintending, he's managing everything. And once Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that God sovereignly rules the nations, it, it, his sanity and kingdom were restored to him. In, and we see it recorded in verse uh, 34, I believe it is, 32 or 34. Let's look, uh, let's begin by saying, uh, making this statement, God causes disasters. We're wondering, like, as we're seeing all these disasters increase in intensity and in frequency and scope, 
We're, many Christians and churches have questions about disasters. And the, the first thing we learn from God's word is that God causes disasters. He's the cause of them. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create what? And create what? Calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Lamentations 3.38 says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? We just think that blessings, so-called positive blessings that make us prosperous, those come from God, but nothing negative comes from God. We feel uncomfortable with it, but it's not true. And, of course, you've got a few additional references that you can look up. Amos explicitly says that the Lord causes disasters. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it, Amos says rhetorically? Who brought the flood in Noah's day? Anybody? Who brought it? God did. Who rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah? Who brought the ten plagues against Egypt? Who brought drought against Israel in Elijah's day? And we could go on and on and on. Not only does the Bible state it in a teaching sort of manner, it illustrates it over and over and over again. In Ezekiel 14, 21, the Sovereign Lord says, How much worse will it be when I send? When I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine, wild beasts and plagues, or pandemics, if you like, to kill its men. Does God send armies to defeat nations? He does. He does, even in our day. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 8 to 9 says, Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon the peoples of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. In fact, he goes on to, Isaiah says, that God whistles for these enemies to attack his own uh, 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 Israel. Like you whistle for a dog. Isaiah 5, 26 says, He lifts up a banner for the distant nations, like the Assyrians for northern Israel, like the Babylonians for the southern kingdom of Israel. He, and, and he says, He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. And if you continue that through that passage, it talks about how their swords are sharpened and it talks about the rumbling of the horses' hoofs and, and so on and so forth. That's what he's talking about. So the question then is, why does God cause global disasters? Why does he do this? And I'm going to start off with a bold statement. He does so because he loves people. He does so because he loves the nations. That's where I'm going to start. That's why he does it. Many Christians think God sends disasters because he is judging people. 
though he most certainly has judged nation, nations in the past, in the Old Testament, will judge the nations in the end, a chief reason or motive for sending disasters and judgments isn't to judge them in the sense of getting rid of them, but to save people. That's why he does it. I'll prove it from Scripture. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Would you agree with that? He desires that they live. Ezekiel 33, a book that your pastor loves very, very much. It says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure in the death of the wicked. God has none. But that the wicked, what? Turn from his way and... And then he pleads with him. God pleads with him. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways for why will you die? Why will you die? Isn't it often true that when people face calamity that they turn back to God? Is that true? Not always, but isn't it often true? The scriptures actually say that. Job chapter 30, verse 24. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? God does this so that they will be saved from eternal life, loss and have life. God isn't nearly as concerned about the dot of our present as about the line of eternity. Is that true? And he's willing to sacrifice the comforts in the dot of the present for the gain and life in the eternal. That's how God thinks. But we're so focused on the dot of the present that we can't understand these spiritual truths. God does this so that they'll be saved from eternal loss. Job 33, just a few chapters over, says, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Isaiah 19.22 says, The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. Now look at this. They will turn to the Lord. That's why he does it. And he will respond to their pleas and heal them. There it is. He gives the, he gives the reason why he's striking them and why they will end up being healed. Because he uses those things to turn us back. Hosea chapter 6 verse 1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. Let us, what? Come, let us, what? Return to the Lord. Means they were wayward. Let's return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. In other words, he has torn us. Let's return to him so that he will heal us. That's what the, what the prophet Hosea is saying. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Through Amos, chapter 4, verse 6 to 12, and you might want to go there in your, 
in, in, your, in your time of the Lord this, this week and do some underlining there. God said that he sent judgments to cause Israel to repent. First, he sent a famine of food in, in Amos chapter 4, verse 6. It says, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and a lack of bread in every town. Now, read the underlined portion with me. Yet, you have not returned to me. This is what I did. I took away bread. I brought famine. Yet, you didn't return to me. I brought you a pandemic. Have we returned to him? Then he brought on a drought in Amos chapter 4, but they still didn't return, verses 7 to 8. Then a blight. Then it was followed by locusts. Then pestilence. And finally, war. It was increasing intensity and increasing frequency and, in, in, and, and a widening of the scope, all with the intent of bringing them back. And he says, but they didn't do it. Five times he says, yet you did not return to me, meaning he was expecting them to return. And there you have the verses. He was trying to get them to repent, turn back to the Lord. He wanted them to live and know his blessing. That's why he did it. What a long-suffering, merciful, gracious, and loving God. You know, people often say, the Old Testament, you know, New Testament is, uh, 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 grace is found in the New Testament, judgment is found in the Old Testament. How trite. That's very, very unbiblical thinking. The Old Testament is packed with God's grace. In every judgment, it is full of grace. Look at the ten plagues of Egypt. They increased intensity because God wanted them to turn back. He wanted them to know him. And by the way, many Egyptians did come to know him. There's a passage there. I just don't have time to take you there right now. That says he was doing it so that they would come to know the Lord. That's what it literally says. And actually, many Egyptians did come to know the Lord. Amen? Yeah, a whole mixed multitude came out with them. Many of his uh, Pharaoh's advisors said, Pharaoh, this is from, this, we can't do this. This is from the finger, literally, that's what it said, the finger of God. That's why he does these things. He's merciful. He's gracious. It is true that God speaks to us in our stillness. We sang, be still and know that, uh, be still and know that I am God, right? We just sang that. It is true. But it is equally true that he also speaks to us in the whirlwind. Isaiah 30, verse 30 says, the Lord will cause men to hear his majestic voice and will make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire with cloudburst, thunderstorm, and hail. He speaks in the still small voice, Psalm 46.10, and I saw it posted just outside the prayer room this morning, and I thought that was beautiful. But he also speaks in the whirlwind. 
and he speaks loudly. That's how he gets our attention. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our... He got it. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. By the way, God uses disasters to bring his own people back to him, too. You know, uh, uh, I'm glad they didn't go to the Second Chronicles passage quite yet. We all know Second Chronicles 7.14. Amen? If my people who are called by my name will and, and seek my face and turn from there, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. Look at that. You all know it. Everywhere I go, everybody knows 2 Chronicles 7.14. What is never quoted with that verse is the one right before it. So let's read it. Because that one we don't know. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, disasters with God's people, then if my people will humble themselves and pray, and so on, what we just said. In other words, they were, they were experiencing disaster and God had brought it upon them so that they would return. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what it says. He said similar things to the seven churches of Revelation. Meditate on Revelation 2 and 3. And you'll see he, sa he says the same thing. He says, here's some things I... He, and, uh, he, he, um, he says some good things about, he evaluates the, the seven churches and says the things that are doing well and so on, and then he tells them what, they, what they're not doing well, and then he says, and so you, you need to turn from that, you need to repent, he even uses that word, repent from that, and if you don't, I will come and fill in the blank. Amen? That's what he does. Um... So we, can see, we see it there too. That's his mercy. That's his grace. That's his love. This is how he deals with all people. It is because God loves people that he inflicts hardship. Did you know that? It's because he loves people. He's not looking at the dot of the present. He's looking at the line of the eternity. We get so focused on the dot of the present and ignore the line of eternity. And that's why we don't understand what God is doing. If God didn't spare his own son, Romans 8, 32, so that we would be saved, then it only makes sense that he'll do whatever it takes to keep us from eternal destruction too. Would you agree? If he wouldn't even spare his own son in the dot of the present, then why would he spare us from those things? Isn't that true? Well, there's a final global disaster coming. 
Though the frequency and intensity of global disasters is rising sharply, they're just a precursor of the worst global catastrophe just ahead. It'll be caused by a brutal dictator, popularly known as Antichrist, who will bring upon the earth the greatest tribulation the world has ever known. He will extend his authority over a coalition of nations and will seek to conquer many other nations. Daniel spoke of this evil empire, interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a large statue. Now, Daniel also interpreted another one, if you're not familiar with it. Daniel said that there would be five key empires. Remember that statue, made a head of gold and the chest of silver, and, uh, and then came the bronze, and then the iron, and the iron mixed with clay. Those were empires. The first one, he, he interprets it. He says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, that's the first one. You're the head of gold. That's the Babylonian empire, and then the Persian empire, then the Greek empire, and then uh, uh, another one that's iron, and then iron mixed with clay. And Daniel said this last one, the fifth one, that's still to come, would be the most terrifying of all empires. That empire has not existed in history yet. Daniel 7, 7 said, but it's coming. He said, at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled under, underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts. And the Bible says this antichrist kingdom won't just be a political kingdom, it'll also be a religious one. The Bible says this, anti, uh, and uh, as a religious one, it denies the Trinity. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, talks about that, denies the Father and the Son. And this kingdom will demand worship, and whoever resists will be killed. Revelation 24 says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. And for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Already we're seeing around the world, not exactly this, but already we're seeing that if you don't, if you don't hold with certain sexual agendas uh, and you don't hold to them, you start to begin to pr pay a price with your jobs and, and so on and so forth. It's going to intensify. This whole thing will intensify. And this will happen simultaneous to increasing natural disasters. In Revelation 6, 8, he said, I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, or pandemic and wild beasts. There it is. The same thing that we saw in Ezekiel. The exact same four. And Jesus said it would bring about the world's greatest tribulation, for then there will be great tribulation uh, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. And we're moving quickly toward that hour. So what is God doing in the midst of these disasters that are increasing in in numbers and intensity and scope. What is God doing in the middle of it? God has not given up this world. He's still working among the nations. In John 5, Jesus said, My Father is always at work to this very day. And what is he doing? Drawing people to himself. That's what he's doing. 
John 6 says, no one can come to, to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I'll raise them up at the last day. And the primary way that he draws them to himself is through disasters. That's a primary way. That's how he gets our attention. God is always moving, always working, always drawing, always stirring things up, and always pe moving people around so that people will be saved. He's always doing it. He never stops working. We sing that song, right? He never stops drawing people to himself. And when he rouses a deaf world through disaster, he sends his church into the middle uh, to sh uh, of the disaster to share the, the gospel. If his people resist, he sends disaster upon them. When God commissioned Jonah, he wanted 120,000 Ninevites to be saved, who didn't know the right hand from the left hand, he says in Jonah chapter 4. And God wanted them to be saved. He said, Jonah, go and tell them there's a, that judgment is coming. I'm going to destroy them. And uh, Jonah resisted, and he fled in the exact opposite direction. Instead of going east, he went west to, to Spain, uh, Tarshish. That's the boat that he was on. That's where it was headed. And then God brought a disaster on him and the boat. Remember? Is that true? He most certainly did. Sent a tremendous storm so that Jonah would turn around and go back. The storm caused the sailors to throw him over, overboard. God had prepared a, a whale or a fish or something to take him back. And you know which direction that, that, um, that fish went or that whale went? east. The boat was going west to Tarshish, that's Spain, on the Mediterranean. And the fish went east and, and spit them up on the Mediterranean coast, on the, on the west side there, and then he headed, he headed over there um, to Nineveh to proclaim judgment. And of course, what happened? The Ninevites what? And when they did, God relented. That was the whole point. God sent persecution to the church also in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, so that they would leave Jerusalem to witness to the nations so they could be saved. In Acts 1.8, Jesus had instructed them to leave the security and comfort of Jerusalem to bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, begin at Jerusalem and go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth or uttermost parts of the world is what he said and when they didn't the spirit sent persecution and with that they fanned out bringing the gospel with them and many were saved that's the story of philip and and uh, and so on god loves the nations and wants them to be saved therefore he's willing for hardships and persecution to come to the church he is God calls us, lastly, to join him in this costly venture. For this, I'm going to tell a summary of a story of Corrie ten Boom, who was born in 1892 in Amsterdam. How many of you have heard of Corrie ten Boom? See, most of you. Many, many uh, years earlier, her grandfather and his pastor had started a prayer meeting for the salvation of the Jewish people. Look at the prayer going on here, okay? 
They're praying for the salvation of Jewish people, and God answered those prayers for it was in that same house. Exactly a hundred years later, where Cory, three siblings, her father and nephew were arrested for saving the lives of Jews during the German occupation of Holland. On May 14, 1940, Hitler ordered the first large-scale airborne attacks in the history of warfare on the citizens of Rotterdam, just 30 miles away. A thousand were killed, tens of thousands were wounded, and, um, or made homeless. And when the Germans threatened another horrific attack, the Dutch surrendered and the German tanks rumbled into Corrie ten Boom's uh, hometown of Harlem. Phone lines were cut, bicycles confiscated, ration cards issued, radios seized. Jews were required to wear yellow stars, Jewish-owned businesses were looted and destroyed, and other businesses refused to serve the Jews. Slowly, Jews began disappearing. No one knew where. When the ten, uh, ten Booms witnessed the destruction of their Jewish neighbor's home at the hands of Nazi soldiers, they sprang into action, hiding them briefly before finding them safe haven elsewhere. An architect designed a secret room to hide Jews, and over the next few months, scores of Jews passed through the Ten Boom home, staying for a night or two or two weeks until safe passage could be arranged. Finally, they took in seven permanent residents. They installed an alarm system, held regular drills to see how quickly the Jews could hide. They provided for them, loved them, shared Jesus with them, and 18 months after they'd begun, their home had become the center of an underground ring that spread to the farthest reaches of Holland. Daily, there were dozens of appeals and reports to the Ten Booms for help, and they knew that disaster could, uh, could not be long in coming, and February 28, 1944 was that day. They were betrayed by an acquaintance, and when the Gestapo arrived, they beat Corey to reveal the hiding places where she hid Jews, but, she, but they didn't find it. She didn't give them up. All five members were imprisoned, and their father died ten days later. Three months after her arrest, Corey was called to her first hearing. And during the interrogation, she began telling the officer about God. For the next three days, he met with her to ask her more about the Bible and how she could believe in a God who allowed her to suffer like that? Ah, there we come with that question. Weeks later, a thousand prisoners were forced into boxcars of a freight train. Corey and Betsy were jammed into a boxcar with 80 other women. They remained upright for four days, weren't given food or water, and the air became foul. Many screamed, cried, and fainted. On the fourth day, they arrived in Germany at the notorious Ravensbrück camp concentration camp for women. They were forced to strip naked and walk before the leering eyes of SS men on the way to, uh, as, as they moved on to the showers. Corey wrapped a Bible and vitamins in a sweater and hid them behind a bench. And when she finished showering, she put on the prison dress and stuffed the bundle down the front. Though it made quite a bulge, she knew God was watching over them. And when she emerged from the shower room, the SS men searched each woman thoroughly for contraband, except for Corey. They had a Bible. They worked exhausting 11-hour days, and twice each day, 
were forced to endure roll call outdoors in the snow. Many died at these roll calls. And when they became too sick to work, they were helped onto trucks for the short drive to the crematorium where they were killed. Because Cory and Betsy's barrack was so infested with fleas, the guards refused to enter it. This allowed them to conduct daily Bible studies with the women and tell them about Jesus. Many women were saved. Here's a lesson. God doesn't take his people out of disasters. He often sends them into these disasters to save those aroused by disasters. The Bible predicts a great coming harvest. And we all like to hear that. Before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. Now, when does that happen? During the greatest global disaster to come. That's when the greatest harvest of all time is going to take place. For it says, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? This multitude that no one could count, where did they come from? These in white robes. I answered, sir, you know, and he said, these are they who have come out of what? Great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The great tribulation of disasters will create so much spiritual hunger that when God sends his church into it, countless people will be saved, just as happened and illustrated by Corey Ten Boom. Why is this an important sermon or lesson during the month of prayer and fasting? Well, the first one is this. So we know how to pray for the persecuted church correctly. A leader in the persecuted church who met with Pastor Stephan and his team said, and Stephan has been, uh, he keeps reminding us of this, that we're supposed to pray like this. And I quote, pray that we would not waste the opportunity to share the gospel. Now you understand the lesson they understand. The persecuted church understands this sermon. Would you agree? They fully understand it. It's the West that doesn't understand it. The Western church does not understand this lesson very well. But the persecuted church understands it very well, and that's why they can make a prayer request like this. And as, as did Corey Ten Boom and her family, now we know why we are to pray that way. Second, so we know how to pray for ourselves in these disasters. A chief purpose for prayer is to align with God in what he is doing. Did you know that? Yes, you know that. That's the truth, right? We go to prayer, and often we are praying, God, just take all our problems away. Take the pandemic away. Take everything away. And God says, no, I'm not going to take it away. 
But you know what the church forgets to do? It forget, and I'm talking about the broader church now. I'm not talking just about... So, do you know what the church forgets to do in the West? Stop and listen to what the Lord of the church is doing in the middle of a disaster and then align with what he's doing and say, Lord, speak to us about what you're doing so that we can align with your purposes and not work at cross-purposes. I'm hesitating because of something I wonder if I should say. The arguing and bickering of church people in the West over what happened in the pandemic is a disgrace to the gospel of Christ. We should have been on our knees asking the Holy Spirit what he wants the church to do in response because he causes the disaster and he's doing it because he's trying to draw all men and women and teenagers to himself. Amen? That's what he's trying to do. But we don't understand the lesson. And so we just want to get rid of it. And so we bicker and argue over how we should handle it. And some say this and some say that. That's the second thing. And the third one is, but I'm, by the way, I'm very glad God is gracious and merciful. This was, I believe this, this last round was just a test. It was just to expose the fact that we, we didn't get it quite. <laughs> we didn't pass the test. But aren't you glad for a test before the real exam? Amen? God is a good teacher, amen? I had a teacher like that who would give us a test before the real exam, and I'd do really miserable, and then the teacher would show us what, we, what was coming and what we had done wrong. I would just correct that, and I'd ace it every time. It was amazing. <laughs> that's what he wants us to do, amen? We didn't score well. The church in the West did not score well during the last pandemic, and we need to repent of that. Seriously. And the next time, we need to get it right. Amen? Third and final. We need to prepare ourselves, our families, and our churches for the world's greatest coming disaster. I hear Pastor Stephen saying this over and over, be discipled and disciple others. There it is. And um, ask to be discipled. I, uh, this, just, this last week, I heard him talk about the way. And uh, get discipled in the way and take that so, and, and be discipled so that you can disciple somewhere, someone else because here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to lose the institutional church the way, we, the way we're used to it now. And it's going to depend on you to know the scriptures well. There's lots of deception coming. It's already here, but a lot more coming. 
we're going to have to know the word well. We need to be disciples so we can disciple others. Amen? Yeah. Because you're not going to be able to do it this way. You're going to have to become the pastors. And by the way, Corey Ten Boom and her family studied the scriptures. I didn't say they just read them. No, 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 no. They studied. They were, they were in, in, in uh, they, they were very diligent students of the word, as were many of the Christians in that day. You'll be tired, but this is no time to figure out how we'll safely retire and escape trouble. Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. <laughs> inspired by your spirit which reveals your will for us today thank you for showing us that you are still God in control oh wow Pastor Stephen talked about anxiety that'll take a, a whole measure of anxiety away if we grasp that to know that you are in control nothing is out of your control thank you Lord Jesus for examples from scripture and examples from modern days of those who knew your word studied it understood the place of the Jewish people and then aligned with your purposes and at great cost to themselves were willing to follow along in your will. And so today, Lord Jesus, as we look at these global disasters around us, our knee-jerk response is not going to be to argue anymore, but to submit to, to you and hear what your Spirit is saying to the churches. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed by saying, 